Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, today I'm talking with Melody. Uh, she's on Twitter as Scientist Mel. And Melody is obviously a scientist. She's also a science educator. She's got a couple of channels on YouTube where she sometimes takes your questions, talks about science. Hey Melody, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so if you could give a bit of your background and then we can go from there. Sure. Um, now, my education background, I have a bachelor's in biology, bachelor's of science in biology, bachelor's of science in biochemistry. I have a master's of arts in teaching, specialized in secondary science education, and I also have a master's of science in analytical chemistry. I've helped develop um, a, a breast cancer test when I was in graduate school, working on my master's of science, um, and I... It's, warranted us a publication so um, it's where we were able to detect exosomes those are teeny tiny little bubbles that cancer cells kind of release into into your blood um, we're we were able to detect those teeny teeny tiny little things which means that's um, a, a better test than the current gold standard to try to um, determine whether or not a person has a type of cancer and if it's trying to spread because that's usually how certain aggressive strains of cancer spread I also um, have done education research. I've taught in public schools and at university. So I absolutely love science. I, I do a lot of outreach stuff on my science communicator channels, youtube.com slash scientismal. I also have a website where I post all of my sources and teachers can use um, the resources there I have as well. It's completely free for people to download and kind of dig in and, and learn a bit as well. All right, cool. All right, um, your research, because there was a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about, and mm -hmm. just, okay, when you mentioned the cancer research, and obviously if you're doing breast cancer, you're going to be focusing on women, but I mean, just, and this might be just because, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not in the field, but, you know, recently things have come out where when they're doing testing on animals, they're only, or mainly doing it on male animals, and so mm -hmm. they're developing, you know, cures or treatments for people but they're not testing you know like they're not testing on female animals so like the effects that would have on testing on results like do you see that or um, that's a very good question just to give you kind of a bit of a background when it comes to um, testing and particularly for medicines and treatments Animal models are a first step. They're not a final step before it goes to market. So when you're dealing with animals, um, you're trying to find out whether or not a particular medicine has an effect on the cells that you want it to have an effect on. Usually medicines interact with what we call protein receptors. They're like little antennas that stick on the outside of your cells. And I recently did an episode on hormones, which is kind of like a cell, sig cell signaler. Mm -hmm. So I talked a little bit about that in that particular video. So if you want to kind of get more information about that, you can, you can find it on my channel. Um, but essentially, medicines often interact with those little antennas that are on the outside of those cells. And so the animal models let us know on whether or not the medicine has an effect on the cells that we want it to have an effect on. So is it just hitting the cancer? Is it hitting other things? Is it detecting just the cancer? Is it detecting other things? Now, what the sex of the animals, as far as the genetic sex of the animals, doesn't matter because that's just the first step. 
Now, once they find that it has an effect, then they have to fill out all of this paperwork. They have to jump a lot of hoops for like the FDA um, in order to start human testing. And so once they move from that, they'll go, okay, well, we know that this is effective in, in the mouse models. We're going to try just a few people, and they'll be multiple sexes. Um, and then they'll just try a little bit. And usually when you start like that exploratory type of human testing, that's um, like a last-ditch effort to try to get treatment. But there's a lot of different hoops you have to jump in order to get to the point to just testing on people. And then once they get to the initial human trials, they'll have various versions of that particular medication that they found to be successful in the animal model. Um, and then they'll move it on to, uh, you know, a small, which ones were effective in the human trials the most with the least amount of side effects. Then they'll move on to a larger scale. Um, and this, usually the sex of the animal doesn't matter because you can genetically engineer mice to just have whatever type of um, expression you want. So if you were working on like a diabetes medication, you could genetically engineer mice with and without insulin. You could just genetically engineer them to where they don't even have the gene for insulin. So you can see what it's like, you know, in a mouse like that or a mouse that has an overproduction of insulin. That's, that's kind of why they use a lot of the mouse models is being able to knock out highly specific traits and just see, does it work on what we want? Yes or no. Okay. So, okay. if that makes more sense. Yeah, okay, it does. And like I said, it's just something I read about and I just said, okay, it just seemed to me, you know, if you're going to, if you want to treat the whole population, you'd want to be able to test it on, a, you know, a good sample mm -hmm. of the whole population, right? Right. Um, that's why the larger scale human trials are done after they check for efficacy to make certain the drug does it once. And as an aside, breast cancer happens in men too, not just women. Yeah, I realize that, but it's much smaller, isn't it? Or is it just smaller because it's less diagnosed? Because it does. Um, it's it's it's. I think it's smaller due to just um, breast uh, the amount of tissue yeah. there. Um, but it's, it still happens in, in men. So it's important for men, particularly if breast cancer runs in their family, guys, you know, check yourselves too. So <laughs> I guess. <laughs> next, next time I work on my pecs, which is never, cause I never go to the gym, but <laughs> <laughs> you're like squeezing. I'm like, I'm checking for lumps guys. <laughs> what? Sir. <laughs> <laughs> All right. While we're on the testing thing, because uh, I just brought this up before we started, uh, testing for falsifiability, like, you know, to falsify your hypothesis or to verify it. Now, I mean, I know like if you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take this match, I'm going to light it on fire, I'm going to hold it to this piece of paper and the piece of paper is going to burn. Now, if you do all that and it doesn't happen, obviously it doesn't work. But like, and again, this is you know, from layman's point of view, from everything I'd read, it was always, you want to try to falsify your hypothesis, so you want to try to disprove it in as many ways possible, and if you can't, if you always get a null result trying to disprove it, then obviously there's some truth to it, right? Yes. Um, when you're going through 
the scientific method. So when we were going through developing our breast cancer test, um, we had to make certain that it was actually detecting the thing that we wanted it to, te- to detect. So we had to check to see if other things were detected by it or not. Um, and so are these positive? So if you get really good results, you're like, yay, this worked. And, you know, then you got to go, okay, why did it work? Now we've got to try it from this angle and verify that, you know, that it is the thing that we're picking up and not something else. And if we think it's something else, we test that to say, okay, does this thing show up on our test? Yes or no. Okay, what else is in the blood that could possibly connect with this test? We pull that. Okay, did it show up? Yes or no. And so there's always um, trying to disprove your hypothesis while at the same time trying to prove your hypothesis. So you have to rule out every single possibility for you to have like a a positive signal on your test in order to show that that's what it is. Because when you undergo peer review, so after you've done all of your fantastic experiments and you're ready to publish it in in a science journal, what will happen is, is they will take that data and they will ask all of the questions that hopefully you've already answered. How do you know it's not this thing that's gone off? How do you know it's not this thing that's gone off? How do you know it's not this thing over here that's interfered? Um, and they will go through and, and check just in any questions they have, you will, then they might want, okay, well you didn't perform this experiment. You need to perform this experiment to verify that this is this thing and not this other thing that's that's recently come up. Um, so so yes, it's both disproving while proving it at the same time. So you can look at it either way, but you do have to rule out every single variable that could have an effect on a thing to make certain that this these two things are connected. Okay, um, you brought up peer review because that's something that I think a lot of people mistake. Because I think when they hear peer review, they're like, okay, this is the gold standard now. This must be true. So, like, you know, if you read, okay, this was a peer-reviewed article in a journal. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to pan out or anything like that. I mean, if, if you wanted to maybe just go a little bit into that, like what that is. Sure. Um, peer review is, it is a gold standard, but it also depends on what journal it's in. <laughs> so, yeah. you have lots of journals that have very, very, very loose standards and aren't considered um, high-end by any means. So, I mean, and what I mean by high-end is high quality. You're not going to get quality science in them. There are um, journals that do homeopathy, um, which we know there's, there's no evidence at all. There's journals. I was just talking about this on my show last Sunday for Deepak Chopra. He publishes a lot of sciencey sounding papers. And and I do that show with Doc Savage, who who is currently a, an immunologist who helped develop the HPV vaccine. He's really he's he's really freaking smart. So we're sitting there ripping apart these journals and we are laughing these papers and we're laughing our way through it because it's utterly bad science. But they're peer reviewed and you're like no, look up the journal. We never even heard of one journal. There's one journal that was the Scientific Research Publishing Incorporated. Sounds legit. Uh. <laughs> I was like, sure. We've never heard of it, and we can't find it anywhere. But it's a paper that Deepak Chopra is proud of. So, <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I mean, like, peer review, from my understanding, and I could be completely off base here, is that 
So let's say I was going to put something into the New England Journal of Medicine, right? I've got something out. So when they do the peer review, that's when they're going to challenge you on your methodology. And, you know, if your methodology doesn't fit the, the standard practices or what's expected from that journal, the standards of that journal, then you're not going to make it in. But it doesn't mean that, so, you know, if you've done one study and the studies followed all their rules, that doesn't mean that, okay, this is now the cure for cancer, right? It's a study that was done. So if someone sees peer review study in a journal, they might think, okay, we've got a cure for cancer. It's coming out tomorrow. You know, like that's what I was trying to get at. Like it doesn't mean okay. that. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah like, misrepresentation uh, of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the common thing in the media. Yeah. I mean, I understand the peer review because if you have a magazine or any public, you know, not just, you know, but anything that's got a peer review system, but if their methodology is completely flawed, it doesn't matter, you know, how it's peer reviewed because if the methodology is flawed, you're not guaranteed any good results, right? Right. I mean, well, and the thing is, is technically what you hope to accomplish with peer review is that they've gone through the methodology. They've gone through and checked it out. They've looked at the data. They've asked questions. The notes that I got back on that paper were in the, a series of two separate emails, and it took me 10 scrolls to get through each one. So, <laughs> so it was, I have a question here, I have a question here, but that's good peer review. You want all of those questions because not only is that going to make your paper better, but it's also going to make you a better scientist. If you have a, if you have a, a study that's been published, in a in a not reputable journal, and it's got uh, um, a sample size of five people, and you know they they didn't have a blind study. The people knew they were taking this medicine. The doctors knew, and you know whatever. It's not a good study, and I talk about that actually on my channel. I um, talk about how to read a paper. Um, how to tell if it's good science or bad science? What are your big red flags? Um, but yeah, the the media often rep misrepresents science, not because they're bad journalists. It's just a lot of them are not as scientifically literate as they need to be. They'll sit there and say, you know, chocolate helps with heart disease, not if you eat five Hershey bars every day. <laughs> but the but the but the the some of the compounds in cocoa are antioxidants and that's good. Really high antioxidants, but if you mix it with a lot of milk, sugar and wax, you get these giant fatty filled chocolate bars. You eat five of those every day, you're gonna increase your risk for a whole lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, ate my ate my way into diabetes so I can uh, you know, I can test to that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know cocoa's good i have co you know i love i love chocolate but I, I i don't i'm trying not to eat chocolate bars but i'll get me some strawberries fresh strawberries dust it with a little splenda put some cocoa powder on the top shake it up and then i add some fat-free whipped cream and i'll just i will eat that like a toddler well it's really good okay i mean like i just mentioned you know, i ate my you know and I, I'm, I'm fully serious here i did eat my way into diabetes um but i that's like my on the weekends I'll I, I'll buy dark chocolate. You know, you get mm -hmm. those big bars and you get like eight or nine you know, like eight to ten squares of them. And I'll have one of those squares like you know, each night on the weekend. And that's mm -hmm. I don't eat it I don't eat that during the week or anything like that, but it's at least the dark chocolate's not that sweet, doesn't have that much sugar. Right. But, but you know. 
No, no. I mean, and, and that's the thing. Just, just about any, pretty much anything will kill you on this planet. It's a matter of dosage. Yeah. Oh, so. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Drink enough water. <laughs> uh, okay, I mean, because you spend a lot of time trying to educate, and that was one of the things I wanted to speak to you about. Because um, I, I did some science, and but this was back in the late 80s. So, I mean, there was even less women in, you know, the science departments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you keep hearing about that now and you keep hearing about, you know, needing to get more women in STEM. Now, I'm... The whole saying, like, needing to get more women in STEM, I'm like, okay, needing to get more people who want to go into STEM into STEM. I'd rather look at it mm-hmm. that way. But... Mm-hmm you know, let's encourage everyone who wants to get into it and let's encourage everyone who shows an aptitude for it to at least try it. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, I, I'll, I'll give you a reason why I say that. Like, I don't like affirmative action. I don't want to get a job because I'm brown. I don't want to get a promotion because I'm brown, right? Mm-hmm. I want to get it because of the merit. Yes, let's invite everyone to apply. Let's make sure everyone's able to apply. Let's, and I... So when I, when I see that, like, we need to get more women to go into science, it's like, no, you need to encourage more women to make it viable. You need to make it more open to get in. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, I was just wondering if I could have your thoughts on that. Like, or am I coming at it sure. the complete wrong way? Oh, no. I mean, everybody, I think everybody, it's important for everybody to kind of have an open discussion on their thoughts about these things because the more minds we have thinking about it the more likely we are to have you know find a solution um and that's kind of my thoughts on uh the stem fields we need diversity um not just because uh well it's not fair that there's not more women in there particularly women of color um it's not fair that that's going on but one of the things that I like to point out is, what if we had been inclusive from the beginning? You know, what if we had all of the Katherine Johnsons, all the Hidden Figures ladies, completely involved at the very beginning when we started the science? When you know, when we started to organize the scientific process, how much further would we be in society? Because it's not about man, woman race, whatever. Yeah. It's about how many minds can we have thinking on this. And the more different perspectives that we have in life working on a problem, the more likely we are to solve it. Um, now, trying to solve this issue of lack of diversity in STEM, that's a monster of an issue. Um, come, then This is coming from an, an educator as well as a scientist. And I have worked in industry. I worked in protein recombination, trying to um, basically make the, the, the parts that go into a test to find out if you have a particular virus. So I worked in a bit of that. Um, and what I see is we have it, it it's it's a multifaceted issue it's not just affirmative action you know it'd be nice if we didn't need that but we have a lot of poverty we have a lot of inner city schools that don't have the programs that they need we know poverty has an effect on brain development um, we also know that um, nutrition is a big issue uh, in schools that are underperforming in this country don't get money 
so much from the No Child Left Behind. You have to show that your teachers are educating kids. But these kids also sometimes are at home by themselves raising their brother and sister. They don't have dinner. You know, their only meal is at, 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 at lunch. And the school lunches are not all fantastic in every district. That may be their only meal of the day, getting breakfast and lunch at school. And then you also have issues that are societal issues. We have racism. You also have issues at home with parents. You know, and so you have to kind of consider there's a society plays a heavy role in the future of, of, of people in STEM. Um, so what we have to do is kind of, and this is kind of, we can't, retroactively do this now but what what we have to do is is address all of these problems that we have within our school system um in order to get more people in and um one of the one of the things is a lot of companies like the gates foundation um they donate money to districts to try to build and and you know, there's STEM programs there. Um, Disney, you know, I don't know if you, you heard about this. Um, when Black Panther came out in Memphis, Tennessee, that was the highest, um, highest, uh, that was the city that had the most people go see Black Panther was in Memphis. And so the, the Disney donated money to that Memphis city schools to try to develop a STEM um, program because of the huge um, turnout for that. So you do have companies that are trying to um, do what they can to funnel some some money into these school districts. But until we address a lot of these other societal issues, that's going to always be playing a role. Now what we can do now until that's all fixed is to incorporate people it who are gatekeepers that are women of color women men of color you know white women whatever you know and have them in mentor roles in various parts of universities and high schools to say okay um and and encourage that because we have people who have different life circumstances they need to be able to see somebody that's similar to them that can address their individual needs. Does that make sense? Because they're going to be different. Oh, yeah, no, okay. I don't disagree with anything you've really said there. Like, it's just... But like I said, I I, I don't... Like in Canada, uh, a couple years ago, they said that all the chairs of all the departments of the universities, if they're not diverse according to the population statistics, universities will lose money. It's... I, okay, I, I didn't live in the Middle East, but I mean, I, I study it, I study that region a bit because I'm an ex-Muslim and, you know, the enforced secularism that you had in the Middle East was not a good thing. It gave secularism a bad name. Like this enforcing it, like, okay, if you want to chair for a chemistry department right now, you're going to go out, you're going to look at the best candidates available for that chair, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you say, again, you want the best people in there, you want them, and, and I realize... But just saying, okay, we're only going to look for this group and this group only. I think that's a disservice to yourself and to your university. I, I agree with a lot of the things you were saying. And I realize like right now, someone graduating high school right now with all those conditions is going to have a huge hurdle to cross. And let's say 
instead of pushing them into a university course uh, and they not, might not do as well, okay, you know what? We want you in this course. We think you're good for it. We, but, you know, take a year at a community college, prep for it, and then go into university. You know, something mm-hmm. something along those lines. And I mean, obviously, yes, and I've, I've, I've said the same thing you have. Until you fix what's going on before you get to the university level, you're always going to have this problem. Like, yeah. those things need to be addressed before you do anything else. And and the thing is, they're not really completely going to go away, but we need to lessen their impact. Um, my, my suggestion, uh, you're going to have chairs of departments and that sort of thing. You know, that's that's important, but what would be useful is to have um, somebody there within the department whose sole role is to mentor women, somebody in the department whose sole role is to mentor, you know, people of color or women of color, because they're all going, cause, because just the way that the state of the world is right now, particularly our society, we, you and I have vastly different life experiences. Oh, okay. Now, that's not, that's not saying that my life is worse than yours or your life is worse than mine. I'm not even going there. But I recognize that my life is going to be very different than yours. Um, and so what we bring to the table is going to be very different. Um, now, me walking into a room that's nothing but a bunch of men, having been a survivor of assault... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm I'm going to have a, a a different feel than, you know, it, and but see those still those things are still going to be there, but m- making certain you have a mentor in place, somebody you can talk to that cuz that's vastly lacking particularly in graduate studies. There's really no mental health um and and you know, things available to help you cope because you get torn down. You get torn down and rebuilt in grad school. That's, it's just like freaking army for science. But it's it's rough and what a woman and a man goes through are completely different. And you got men who are making like sex jokes off in the corner and you're like, okay, what what am I gonna do? Report them? Then I get I, I get blacklisted or I, I get like a target put on my back as a troublemaker. You see, so um that's that's the thing that's it's okay. it's rampant. Okay, so, I mean, the, the yeah. just, I, I want to I'll come back to that in a second. Okay, that mentor thing, I think that's a great idea. Yes, mm-hmm. you need, you know, um, yeah. You know, well, like I said, I've been through university and stuff, and I know how hard it can be, especially if you, you know, like if you, especially if okay, you're young, you've gone off to a new town, you don't know anyone there, you know, it's all that pr- plays on you. Plus, then, like you said, I mean, I I did some science in school and. I know what you're talking about. You have, yeah. And okay, maybe it's changed because you know, like I said, I, I graduated university in '92, so you know, it's quite a while now. Um, but people who are in the sciences were still, you know, like your typical geek from like you know what you would think of a geek in the '80s, right? And but because they were doing well in their classes, they had some sort of credibility or something, so they started acting like what you would think an alpha male would act like and it was just like and it, it but it was they were insecure in themselves and they just acted like complete assholes and you don't need that you know no and, you know, no you don't no one needs that but you know it's and i, I like I, I know where you're coming from because i would see that and it's just like you know give it a rest you know and i mean 
like that was one thing I always found like there was um, you know yeah if a, if a woman did if a woman did better than one of these guys on a test or something they would get mm. so pissed off like ugh. okay I, I would laugh I was never I was one of those people who went from like mm. I could fit in in any group like I was not like one of those people in high school who was okay you're the jock you're this you're that right so I was all over the place and like but I did really well on science I liked science and I was in those classes and I'd see them and I'm like you know, if we were out in a bar, you couldn't even talk to her. Right. But you feel powerful in here, so you're taking it out on her because you did crappy on a test. Like, you know, like it was, it, it was just like that, that mentality. I mean, no matter where I saw it, like if it was in like that kind of setting or anywhere else, mm-hmm. you know, you feel powerful for whatever reason and you're really insecure and you're taking it out on someone else. I mean, like that kind of thing is the thing I think needs more focus on. And I that's like... If it's not a welcoming environment, you're not going to mm-hmm. get more people to come in. No, I agree. That's one reason why women are leaving computer science. Um, women are responsible primarily for computer science to agree to a degree. Ada Lovelace had the first. Um, com- she actually early yeah. on came up with the first stuff. I mean, and we had women are solely responsible for programming all the computers at NASA. Um, we we have women, and they're like, well, women just don't like computer science. No, they actually built the thing. Um, but they're leaving. They're leaving computer science. There's a whole lot of studies about this. They're getting degrees, but they're walking away from their jobs. After they get a degree, they walk away from their jobs, and it's largely due to a hostile work environment. Yeah, I mean, okay, and... I Okay, like, I, I, I hate having to say these things, and it just... You know, we're not talking about every single person here. You know, we're talking... There, there's mm-hmm. a group... Of people and I, and I don't. I work in IT. You know, mm-hmm. I've I've worked in IT in war zones. I've worked it in the military and stuff like. And mm-hmm. the military was the only place I didn't really find that. Okay, everyone took the piss at everyone. It didn't yeah. matter. And I yeah. mean, we had no filters. Like there was no, nothing mm-hmm. was off the table. Well, that's also part of your bonding. Yeah, you know. And it's... I mean, but you know, that was the one of the most equal places I've seen in a workplace. It's mm. if you do your job, you're respected. If you don't, you're not, and it nothing else really matters. And I've, I mean, I know, and part of that bonding is like a brother sister type of thing, where you just you just you know like, hey, yeah. punch him on, like, what are you doing? You being you know whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. just just part of that. I've had family in the military, and that's kind of how they described it, and they're like, you know, it's just part of the bonding because you're all in a very hard difficult situation so you take it out in your different ways where you can yeah. kind of come together as a unit but like i said there it was pure do you do your job you know this is your job do you do it do you do it well great you're respected it didn't nothing else really mattered yeah and i've never seen that anywhere else and i mean I, you hear a lot about all oh, the military they're sexist and this that but because you'll see a bunch of guys sitting around telling jokes and that's you know, if you're in the middle of a war zone, that's what it is. And if it was girls in there as well, like there was one um, close protection team and they gave themselves the name, the Barbie, the Barbie team. And it was all women who are this close protection team. So those are like the, you know, they'll be bodyguards for generals and VIPs mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what the, the nickname they gave themselves. And it's just like I said, they, but they were respected by all the other 
close protection yeah. teams because they did their job. It's a different work. culture. Yeah. You know, it is a bit of a different culture. And no, you don't see that a lot of other places. Um, but, you know, I was going to read this letter to you. I don't know if you ever saw this. This was um, from James Malden, who was a senior in mechanical engineering. This is an open letter um, to, I think, the university, the university mm-hmm. thing. And it said letters to the editor. So there might be hope. That's that. This letter might bring a bit of hope, but kind of puts things in perspective, particularly what we're talking about. And he says, to the women in my engineering classes, while it is my intention in every other interaction I share with you to treat you as my peer, let me deviate from that to say that you and I are, in fact, unequal. Sure, we are the same in school program. We are in the same school program, and you are quite possibly getting the same GPA as I, but does that make us equal? I did not, for example, grow up in a world that discouraged me from focusing on hard science, nor did I live in a society that told me not to get dirty or said I was bossy for exhibiting leadership skills. In grade school, I never had to fear being rejected by my peers because of my interests. I was not bombarded by images and slogans telling me that my true worth is in how I look and that I should abstain from certain activities because I might be thought too masculine. I was not overlooked by teachers who assumed that the reason I did not understand a tough math or science concept was, after all, because of my gender. I have had no difficulty whatsoever with a boys club mentality and I will not face added scrutiny or remarks of my being the diversity hire. When I experience success, the assumption of others will be that I earned it, so you and I cannot be equal. (laughs) You know, I I tear up a bit because I printed this out and put it at my desk every day when I was in grad school. So you and I cannot be equal. You have already conquered far more to be in this field than I will ever face. Yeah, And that's, that's kind of like, my perspective on that, not just being a woman, but also other marginalized groups mm-hmm. who are told they can't, I, I was told science is hard and you're a girl, you should be a teacher. In 2000, in, um, I believe it was 2011, by um, a professor of biology at, at the university. Good Lord. Um, so, I mean, oh, I mean he's, okay. he's a gatekeeper. He was in charge of who got into grad school there. So I had to go to the chemistry department instead and get um, a master's there. Because I'm I'm a woman, but <laughs> no, I mean, but okay. what, what am I gonna say? You know, no, but okay. You see, like I, that's not right. I, I I'm sorry. No, it's I, not. I, you know, I, there's no other way I could say it. But and, you know, what was I gonna do? File well, a complaint. Uh, you yeah, know, I, but that okay. See, like, uh, and I'm not saying anything. I'm not trying to be, you know, like, but like you said, like, what are you gonna do? File a complaint, like. That should not have to be your attitude. If there's someone like that, taking recourse against them should not be seen as a bad thing. But it is. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, like, uh, again, maybe, okay, you know, like I mentioned to you earlier, I, I got out of the sciences because of, you know, I just I just had bad experiences with the teachers. Just And it wasn't anything like that. It was just they were, like, telling me, like, it was their way of the highway and, you know, only only giving me one option of how to do something. I'm like, well, that, that doesn't work. You know, that's not what yeah. I, so I, but, you know, and I guess obviously being a guy, I don't think I'd ever encounter that. Um, but like I was, you know, and I, I don't want to diminish any of that, but, you know, just one little thing in that letter, again, it was going back to the affirmative action. Like 
I understand why it was there. I understand why it's needed and all that. But like I said, I don't want to. And this is myself personally. And if others, you know, feel differently, that's fine. Like I don't want to get a job. You know, oh, you had things put in your way, so we're going to give you a job because you're brown, or we're going to give you that promotion because you're brown. I don't even think it's that anymore because yeah. there's yeah. highly qualified people, yeah. um, and and it and it's not about because of the fact there's there's so many qualified people now who are people of color or you know a woman or or whatever um, that are fully capable of having that job, but there's there's still active studies right now where you have people um, high, people who work in hiring mm-hmm. and you can look up this study I'll send you a link to it when I find it um, they took people who are in charge of hiring others you know bringing in new talent gave them resumes equal resumes put a man's name on one a woman's name on the other gave all of these people even switched the names around completely equal the people who were hiring rated the male's resumes higher every single time every single time okay and you know i'm not saying <laughs> no but I, i'm not saying that there's not people who aren't qualified who aren't getting it I'm, like things like this like like that kind of stuff has to stop i'm just talking about you know form- it sucks that we have yeah, it yeah, yes yeah. i agree and also because the problem i one of the problems i see with it is let's say i get hired because i'm a diversity hire right and I don't do well in my first month or whatever, the, you know, the first six months or something. And people are like, oh, well, you know, he only got hired because he's brown and so he doesn't know how to do the job. Like, like, it just, the people who are already racist, it gives them added ammunition. And, I, you know, like, like I said, I, I get where you're coming from and I understand why it's needed. It's just mm-hmm. like, you know, I wish it didn't need have to be needed and I wish there was another way around it. Yeah. I I agree, I agree with you. It it absolutely sucks, and yes, that can be seen as as a thing. But the way I see it, and what I've actively done, is I've made myself so ridiculously overqualified for most jobs that when I do get a job, they're like, "Oh, well, she's like, I have four degrees. How many do you have?" Yeah. <laughs> and then I just like, it took me four degrees. Yes, it did. But I, I how many do you have? We're not going to talk that way. So I've had to, I, you know, and they're like, well, you shouldn't have a thin, they say, you shouldn't have a thin skin on the internet. No, I point out horrible behavior as a teachable moment. That's largely what I do when I'm pointing out things. But it's like, you know, I I worked really, really hard to make myself so incredibly qualified for lots of different things. So if I walk in, well, you're overqualified for this job. That's okay. I'm, I'm completely fine with mm-hmm. doing that. And that's the only downside is because I'm usually more qualified than my boss. So, <laughs> which, yeah. which is the downside to that. But um, uh, I've been in that position. But, you yeah. know, I, I, I try to just yeah. go with yeah. the flow. But okay. that's, that would be my response to that. Like, you know what? I'm here. I'm doing this job. I have this many degrees and I'm working hard. What are you doing? It's just we have to kind of shift this idea that, you know, it, and it's going it's, to it's a it's an it's a constant work in progress, isn't it? It's a constant yeah. work in progress. But, you know, like I said, I it, it, it's, you know, when I said I, I don't I don't like affirmative action, I'm not saying get rid of it or anything like that, but I just 
those are my personal takes on it. And yeah. um, it sucks. Oh yeah. Every everything is, but in my opinion, everything is ammunition yeah. when it comes to racism and sexism. It really doesn't matter what it is. They're going to uh, find a reason. Uh, to I, get I, I know they are. <laughs> I know they are. But I'm just like you know. I don't want to give them any kind of easy ammunition, right? It's just um, okay. I'm going to completely switch gears here because. Sure. Your biology and chemistry background, and it just because you know, like I, this is a lot of the stuff I read. Um, proton gradients, chemiosmosis, okay. like because I was I I'd read a, I I saw a couple of things about it. Then I started reading some stuff by Peter Mitchell, and I couldn't really get that. And then I read this book by Nick Lane called "The Vital Question: The Energy of Life." And it's talking about all the proton gradients and how like it's the, you know, it's basically basically like how it generates the energy for the cells. Okay, are you talking about electron transfer? Well, yeah, proton transfer, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, because... Okay, so you're talking about like the sodium-potassium pump where you have the different um, the different potential energy across the, like across well, a nerve cell? Well, no, it was... Electro, the, the electrochemical uh, gradient, is uh, that what you mean? Um, okay, it's called chemiosmotic coupling. Okay. Well, if you're talking about the electrochemical gradient, what happens in um, a cell, now what they mean by protons, that means usually just an element that has a positive charge. Yeah. And it can be in the form of hydrogen ions. You have the sodium-potassium pump where you have sodium ions and potassium ions. And so what they do is they, they create um, a, a, an electrical potential. So whenever you have a thought, um, you have the charge switch from positive on one side, negative on the other, the other way around, that carries the charge across um, like your nerve cells into like the other parts of your body for like muscle movement and stuff like that. So that's if that's what you mean by the proton gradient, yeah, the electrical. Because okay, I the the question the book by Nick Lane, um, and it was based on like they'd seen the that in the hydrothermic vents at the bottom of the ocean. And okay. they were going to run some experiments in London where they were going to recreate that in a lab to see if that was what gave the spark to create life. So if that was... Okay, like the sulfur vents where you have yeah. like the extremophiles with yeah. the bacteria that live there. Yeah. And then so like, because mm -hmm. basically what they were seeing there was the hydrogen, you know, like hydrogen nuclei just going through mm -hmm. that chain at the bottom of those, um, those like whatever... Uh, like they said, like the thermal vents there in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's that's where they think a lot of the origins may have happened because they believe that was a similar condition at the beginning. You know, where you had the early, early um, beginnings of of unicellular life in the form of bacteria. Um, is uh, if you go through, we see um, anaerobic. Uh, at respiration is the first because of a low oxygen environment and then it converts to aerobic once we started getting photosynthesis and stuff but um, the early early earth they um, they believe was similar to like those geothermal vents that are underwater mostly sulfur you know not some place that you would think would be a, a fun place to live but you know yeah. But it also gives us insight onto what could live on other planets as well, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll see something like that on Europa. Never know. <laughs> 
Maybe. Wouldn't that be neat? I, I suspect Titan might have life because of all of the different um, hydrocarbon type of um, things. That are like the, the sea of methane and all of that. It's it's very possible that um, we can we, there'll be similar constructions of something like what we see with proteins with amino acids over there just in using different yeah okay so it would be something similar to like what's down but i mean obviously you're talking like microbial life you're not talking you know, oh yeah yeah, yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd, 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 i yeah. wouldn't expect little people yeah. walking around on yeah. tight yeah. it would unicellular is probably yeah. the best way to go or you know maybe like little water bears tardigrades yeah. those those little boogers can can live in all kinds of places they will outlive us. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, just, okay, speculation here, just because we're talking about that. Now, would you suspect they'd have a similar structure like DNA, or would it be like, I mean, I, I mean, we, we'd have to play off those assumptions, right? I mean, yes, you'd have to be ready for anything, but if we're going to go looking for it, we've got an N of 1, and we're going to look for things that are in that N of 1, right? Well, you would expect there to be something similar. What you, A book you might enjoy is Touchstone of Life by Lowenstein. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty cool book. It's not too heavy of a read. It does get into some mathy, mathy parts. But um, I enjoyed it. I had to read it for my physical chemistry class. And it talks a lot about information theory, but on a biological sense. Uh, in the fact that when we look at DNA, how is it that our universe is falling to bits? Because it is. Entropy mm. is increasing, and yeah. it's going to continue to increase. But yet we're still able to have some kind of organization in the form of us and DNA, and it's and it's consistently adapting and, and still storing this information. Well, they get he gets into a lot of how energy is spent making this DNA and and it's kind of like what you do with with computers it's a it's a similar idea you are expending energy and keeping it in the form of information by building information and so it's similar in the biological sense so we have these reactions that they're undergoing to form our own little code of sorts but it codes for proteins um, what stuff that works sticks around stuff that doesn't work they keep putting it together so it would make sense that there would be some kind in order for to have an organized set of proteins which is essentially what we are we have to have instructions for that so the proteins that work in that environment have to have a consistent code to use over and over again in order to continuously make them and so they would have to have some kind of genetic code it might start out in the form of RNA and they get more complicated and and start to connect and say okay now we're gonna form these more complex structures and then we start protecting it to keep it from mutating you know so you have concern you do have conserved portions of your DNA that will not change <coughs> okay well, here, since we're talking about DNA the the Chinese CRISPR babies <laughs> I haven't read about the CRISPR babies. You didn't, there was a bunch of articles like uh, earlier this year. They uh -huh. they they taken. I don't know if they. I guess they took the embryos and they were working on them. Um, mm -hmm. And they 
they they were trying to take out certain genes, but then they think they made them smarter. And uh-huh. the, the guy who did it was coming under a lot of fire, and then they were talking about like doing another round of testing using CRISPR. Oh, okay, yeah, to, ethics. Yeah. Okay, so the ethics involved with CRISPR is when you start messing around with people's DNA, um, one gene doesn't do just one thing. Usually one gene is in charge of lots of different things. And the other issues with CRISPR, uh, we talked about dosage earlier. Now we're able to use CRISPR in small animals and small things and because we can just use a little bit of that enzyme and it's a, a bit easier to control. When you get into like children and, and grown people, the dosages change and the more of that enzyme you introduce and the more of the, the CRISPR components that you introduce, the more likely you are to have things go completely and utterly wrong. One of the things is what if it latches on, and if you're familiar with CRISPR, what it does, it goes through, it latches on a part of the DNA, and it swaps out for the correct nucleotides, and it kind of fixes it that way. Um, but if it rec- if it latches onto a gene that looks similar to the problem one, then you're changing the wrong gene, which has all kinds of issues. There's certain toxicity associated with um, that enzyme, uh, to where I believe it's Cas9. Um, if it starts, they don't know what happens completely when it breaks down at certain dosages. It, what it does to people, um, it can also cause um, cells. You know, it can start becoming um, uncontrollable and change other parts of the DNA. So there's still a lot of issues with that. Now you'd mentioned that they were working on um, embryos. Those are still small enough where the dosage could be a controllable amount to where they could just tweak what they wanted but they're going to have to watch that because again one gene doesn't do just one thing and then you could run into a lot of ethical issues yeah we fixed this one particular genetic disease but now we have this new problem that's shown up because by changing this here, we now have this other thing. So it's just, it's, yeah. um, it, it, you, you just, it's, it's still in early days yeah. with CRISPR. You know, fixing diabetes, but then making someone totally dependent on sugar. <laughs> yeah, he's overproduction of insulin. They eat candy every day. I don't know. I mean, it may not be too bad after a while. All these things yeah. my teeth are brought out. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> dentists would like that, but yeah. But I'm here for my weekly teeth cleaning, dentist. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I get it. Like, there's, you know, obviously you don't want to impede research because it could lead to something good, right? But at the same time. You want to be able to do it with a little bit of care and a little bit of, you know, like I said, wisdom. Like you want to be able to, you know, do we want to like create a baby with four legs so they can run faster, right? You know, like, yeah. you know, it's just not that I think anyone would want to want to do that, but you never know. Well, I mean, yeah. And, and then you got to think about that one cautionary tale I used to play when I was teaching biology is the film Gattaca. If you've not seen it, it's amazing. They get into the ability to where they're able to make nearly genetically perfect people. Um, and so you introduce a brand new level of, um, of discrimination, what they call the invalids versus the valids. 
Yeah, you know? okay, but Gattaca, I kind of liked it in its original form, Brave New World. Yes. I, oh, yeah. I mean, I agree. It's it's pretty interesting, but you know, him having to borrow somebody else's DNA in yeah. order to get in a space program because oh, well, you have a chance of developing a heart issue just because you have the gene doesn't mean it'll happen to you. But they don't. They throw that out the window. You yeah, know? but I mean, uh, like, I don't know if you ever have you read the Huxley book, Brave New World. No, no, I haven't. Okay, it was so it's Aldous Huxley um, came out in the '30s, I want to say. But it was it was basically that so society was alphas, betas, and all the way down to the deltas. I think, or they might okay. have had they might have had omegas. I, I can't remember. It's been a long while. But then there's people who live outside the cities, and they call them savages, and they bring one of these guys back in, um, into the city, and it's just you're if you're an alpha, you have certain levels, and you you have the, you have the best genetics, and everyone is, you know, if if you've been born as a as an omega or a delta or whatever it was you're gonna be a worker you're gonna be this and it was a very organized society it's all done by how your genetics go so like i said gattaca reminded me a lot of that because it, it borrowed a, a lot off of brave new world it, they did a movie in the 70s but it was 70s mm. sci-fi so if you like a little cheese and camp you'd probably like it <laughs> uh, but the book is really good um, yeah, I I loved Gattaca. Um, yeah. You know the face babies versus the lab babies, it, yeah. but it's just it it just I don't know it. Any time you have that, y'all, it's it just is a reminder that people trying to oppress other people is never going to go away. No, it's, it's not. Just, it's but it's you know there, how do we just limit that impact? Yeah, That's I mean a, you know, but then again, okay, let's just stick with the with the CRISPR type of stuff if you can find how you can curb that impulse you might then also curb any kind of other aggressive impulse which I mean even the urge to explore and want to you know advance your field like you know if it's science like if you don't have a little bit of aggression you know Mm-hmm. To, to do the research, you might curb that as well, right? You might curb that. Well, I mean, there's there's science to show that when we see fluffy things, we get like aggressive and want to hug it. I mean, so is our hugging gonna go away too? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's so fluffy, I'm gonna die. That, that's a real thing. You get like really super aggressive when you, <laughs> and it's not like angry aggressive. It's like I must cuddle this within an inch of its life. I mean, th- this is there. I mean, there's science on this, so it's. When it, you just start messing with stuff, you're you're gonna have a trade off, you know. Yeah. You, yeah, I won't need to wear glasses anymore because now I have like perfect vision. But then you know, I mean, it's just if you see the film Gattaca, they're like, we can't have glasses, have to have contacts, but you can't do that. We have to completely fix your vision, but you can't have scars. <laughs> so it's just like that's one of those telltale signs. So they wipe that out quickly. Yeah. So you yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thank you very much. Um, if you have anything else you want to talk about, uh, plug your channels and please send me the links. I'll put them in the description. Awesome. Yes. So every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., I have the science of, which is um, a topic that is viewer chosen. And then I have a poll and then they pick and then I kind of put it in that order. Um, so every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Central, I hop on. And I discuss a topic last Saturday. It was hormones. I've talked about nuclear energy. Um, I think I'm talking about sharks one weekend. Uh, it's just, and it's all a myriad of things. So that's fun. That's like a really good 
educational, and we can we even get into harder science. We we're getting into a bit more of the harder science now that I have a producer. I have somebody who runs the show for me, so all I have to do is worry about content, which makes it so much easier. <laughs> um, and then on Sundays, I have a show called Oral Dacity, and that's a comedy show. It's a comedy cheeky show, and my my counterpart Doc Savage swears a lot. He swears a whole lot. He's Scottish. And if I tried to put a dam on that, that would be like damming the ocean. I can't do it. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I adore Doc. He works in immunology, has worked in um, industry science for about 20, 25 years, lots of publications. I'm really excited to have him on the show. Um, this this Sunday, we're going to talk about David Avocado Wolf. Oh, good we Lord. Just, we just take the horribleness and we just gloriously <laughs> rip it apart. Um <sighs> <laughs> oh, that name. Oh, man. I can't stand him. He has me blocked on Twitter. Deepak Chopra hasn't blocked me yet. But Deepak, we ripped his science papers just to shreds. It, and we did it in the funniest way possible. I, I'm still laughing. I'm still laughing from yeah. Sunday. So this Sunday, uh, we we have little challenges on the show. Is it real or nah, essentially? Mm-hmm. And I and I have like a little an, animated character that pops up and, and pitches um, a, a, a pseudoscience idea to Doc, and he has to guess if it's an actual product or not. So that's fun. So um, so there's that. That's every Sunday at 3 p.m. Central. Um, occasionally, I'll have a show on Thursday nights, I believe around 6 Central, called This Week in BS where I take like a, a latest um, idea that's come out, like I've talked about anti-vaxxers and Facebook pages associated with them, what, what they're doing. I had Doc on the show then because he, he works in vaccines. Um, I've, I've had a vaccination lawyer come on who wrote the book on vaccination law. I did a talk on the abortion bans with Dr. Leah Torres, who is um, an OBGYN, also Nate Brody, who's a law professor. And so we had um, a sex sex educator and an activist on the show as well. It was a great panel. So that's a bit more serious, but BS is in bad science. So it's that. And then every once in a while, I'll do a show called Spirited Science. And if you're interested in being on the show, let me know. It's, I I get, that's like my adult outreach. So if somebody's like, I want to be on your show, I'm like, great. We'll make an alcoholic beverage. What scientist do you want to talk about? Like, I want to talk about, you know, I don't know, Marie Curie. Fantastic. And then I I come up with a little recipe for a Marie Curie drink. And then we sit around and I give the person whatever information they need to read up on. And then we just have a a chat about Marie Curie. Okay, just uh, just out of curiosity, if you're going to make your Marie Curie drink, you would have to make it glow in the dark. I, you know, you can you can make it. That's where we might get into layers and maybe drop a little dry ice on the top. You know, like super like cool looking. You know, but you know, it's it's just a fun laid back show. So that way I can get people who and it's most times people who aren't scientists. They're just like I really like science and this is my favorite science communicator, or my favorite topic, or my favorite scientist. We just sit around and we enjoy an adult beverage. Drinking is not required. You don't have to drink. Um, and then we just talk about talk about that. And it's it's just a lot of fun. So those are the different shows that I have. And then I make shortened versions of my science of shows. So that's called Scientist Mel Shorts. And then I have a website where I put all my stuff. And I have merchandise. Scientistmel.com slash shop. You can, you can buy stuff there if you like. 
to sports sciencey couture. Well, cool. <laughs> like I said, uh, send me all your links. I'll put them on the bottom. And thank you very much. And thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for having me.